Hey everybody, Josh Smith here again, live at Flat 5, my studio, and uh, having another little chat with another friend and great guitar player. My guest today is the great Joshua Ray Gooch, Josh Gooch, who lives here in Los Angeles. Uh, he's an incredible guitar player. He's been out and in the scene since he was really young. We have a lot in common in those ways, and we also both have a great first name. Um, anyways, he's toured with Shania Twain. He's toured with Beth Hart. He's toured the world. He's played in Japan a ton. Uh, he, he's played blues. He knows he, he's won the King of the Blues competition with Guitar Center. Uh, he's just a bad dude, and I'm excited to have him on here. So, Josh, thank you for coming on. Man, I appreciate you having me, Josh. I um, I've been aware of your playing for a long, long time, way before we actually met. So uh, it's it's a pleasure to actually to call you a friend now and to be to be asked to be on this show. I was excited and sort of looking forward to what kind of stuff we'd be talking about. Thanks, man. It's been really fun. And for me, this whole thing is about finding out all my friends and heroes and influences, their process, because that's the most fascinating to, thing to me. I was obsessed early on with figuring out how to find my own voice on the instrument and like find out how to be me and talking to all these people as I've been doing the last few weeks while I'm interviewing my friends everybody's process is incredibly different but we all have the same kind of drive and goal of trying to find our our path our lane and dude the process is the journey is the is the fun it's like so I'm very curious to hear your journey so uh, tell me a little bit about you know your family and where you come from and kind of how the guitar got put in your hands the first time. Man, I started playing a little bit late. I started playing right before I turned 14, but I'm from Seattle originally, but then, you know, early elementary school moved to San Diego and uh, was, I was really involved. Like the first sort of like cultural thing that I was involved in that I was obsessed with. Cause I, I've been obsessive with stuff that I like since I was a very young kid. Like I remember, like memorizing this entire car book where I was like memorizing all of the, you know, types of engines and horsepower of all these cars that were completely out of my, uh, like I'd never even seen them like McLarens and all this stuff. So I was obsessive like that. But when we moved to San Diego skateboarding, I mean, it was the late nineties in San Diego. So skateboarding was literally like the definitive culture down there. And that's tangentially related to punk rock. So once I actually, I was skating, all through elementary school, absolutely no music. I didn't take piano lessons. I liked music and I always would like run home from school to watch like VH1 Countdown and TRL and stuff like that. Um, but I, I, I remember being in, in third grade and I brought in Living for the City as the song that I wanted to bring in. And the teacher's like, we can't play that middle section because <laughs> they, they, the teacher knew it and they're like, we can't play that. Um, right. And I was like, why not? I just, I didn't think anything of it. I just liked the music. But I wasn't playing until like I was really deep into the punk rock sort of skateboarding world in middle school and ended up one day I literally had a new skateboard and it got and it was stolen because I was I was, you know, dumbass and left it outside just thinking like, oh, whatever, you know, I'll go skate on it later. And I realized like I don't have a hobby anymore because I want to ask my mom for a new board and she's like, tough shit, you lose your board, you got to deal with it. So my dad had a couple of guitars laying around the house. He had always, play, always played casually. It was never like a professional thing, but he, he would improvise songs, make everybody laugh, sort of like Neil Young type guitar playing. Mm -hmm. um, and he had a Kramer sitting around, one of those like 80s Kramers nice. that he had bought at a pawn shop at, at like lunch break at work for like 300 bucks, something like that. And I picked it up and the week before he had shown me how to read tabs. I had never played a guitar, but he's just like, yeah, see these numbers here? They correspond to the frets. And I was like, oh, cool. And he had printed out Brain Stew by Green Day. <laughs> so I sat down and it was just, you know, like ultimate guitar tabs. This is like 2004, sure. 2000, yeah. something like, yeah, I think 2004. And I just sat down and was like, <laughs> you know, and was just trying to figure out how to play the song. I'm sure I played it wrong. But that first day I played for like eight hours and fell asleep yeah. with the guitar on top of me. And my mom was like, she knew, she knew. She was like, this is now his thing, like the first day. And then I was playing eight, 10 hours a day, every single, I'd, I'd get home from school, pretend I did my homework, uh, you know, write some cliff note <laughs> shit on a piece of paper yeah. and then go yeah. play all day. So, but it was a very quick transition. Cause like punk rock stuff, it's like in a, the first couple months, like I had already, you know, learned all the. And it, the one thing that's, that I will say was really advantageous about that 
is the right hand muting from punk rock. Like you really learn that like. All of that stuff and sort of like how much pressure and dynamics you get out of the strings. I feel really fortunate learning punk rock first because it led to metal, which then was like, okay, now I can take all these punk rock techniques and apply them with a little bit more left hand stuff when it came to more hard rock and metal. That was sort of the next phase. Nice. It's amazing how much uh, similarity on guys younger than me. They all have this guy. I've, I've talked to a few have skateboarding, Green Day. Green Day comes up a lot, actually. And uh, it's, it's very interesting to me. Yeah. Well, you know what I you know what I think it is, man? And I, I think this is the same reason, like, I love collecting vintage stuff and vintage clothes. And it's funny, like, I always notice a lot of people in that world are punk rock people or they have a, you know, they have a tattoo, a bunch of tattoos. And I think it's a subculture thing. It's people that are interested in a niche and heavily invested in understanding it and living that in that space. And it transitions really well to like the obsession of collecting vintage clothing or the obsession yeah. of music because you can get really deep down into that topic and there's almost infinite possibilities of variation. Well, yeah, and it sounds like, like me, you have, like you said, an obsessive personality where not only when you get into something, do you want to know everything you can possibly know about that subject, you also want to be as good as you can be at that thing. You want to work as hard as you can and be take it to the, the wherever you can take this ride as far as you can. And I think that gets overlooked sometimes. Guys look at guys who have been playing since they were young and who have a successful career and make things look easy and there's this tendency to say oh he's got a gift and that may be true i know we all certainly know people who fall into that category like that dude's just got something special but even that dude works way harder than you fucking know he works he sat on the edge of his bed and played for ten thousand hours just like you know whatever a guy in japan who learned to make samurai swords worked for ten thousand hours to work on that and i i think that gets you know it's easy to overlook the hard work aspect, even to the people who have a natural gift. Yeah, and, and there's also a bit of the Dunning-Kruger effect with a lot of the people that aren't good at something. They can't, um, you, you know, if you haven't put in the time, it's like you don't realize how much you don't know, right? And the more, the more, the further down the path you get, the more you realize that you need to learn. And I think a lot, of, a lot of people that, that you see writing comments on YouTube videos and a lot of hate and stuff like that, those are typically people that, that there's a bit of Dunning-Kruger going on. Like they don't realize how little they know about a subject. Like I'm, I'm always realizing with every single week how much more I could learn about music, life, and I mean, anything you want to bring up. But if we're talking specifically about music, yeah, there's no, there's real, there really is no end to the learning. And if there is, you, you kind of lost the plot. That's what makes it so great is the never-ending aspect. Every single day for 40 years, basically, I've had a moment in the day where a thought comes into my head that goes, I never played that that way. Let me try that. And this is something new already. And it's like, ev that's every day of my life, you know? And it's, it's a never-ending journey, but that's what makes it so rewarding. Absolutely. I mean, how many years have you been playing guitar now? Like, what's the... What's 35 the years. 35 years. I mean... That's, that's pretty special that you can find. Like, I, I love hearing that because I still feel that same way. Um, and, and I hope to feel the same way at 35 years. Like, I want to feel that, you know, and, and sometimes you lose it temporarily. I'm sure you have too, where you lose it and you have to, you have to divert. You got to start listening to new music. You might need to take a break from guitar. You yeah. might need to play a different instrument. I noticed when, when I stop playing guitar the way I want, I'll pick up a bass for like two weeks. Because I collect basses, I love bass, and it sort of will reframe my mind to think in a different way. And then when I get back to guitar, I'm excited about all the shit that I can do on guitar that I couldn't do on bass. Right. You know, or I'll pick up a slide for two weeks and I won't play any fretted guitar at all. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, the, it's like that thing of like the more limits you put on yourself, the more creative you can get in that space. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when I'm, you know, when people are asking me about, you know, developing a solo or, or phrasing and this and that, it's the first thing I do to them. Hey, let me put you down into this little corner, paint you way back into this corner and give you these three notes and you got to take your whole solo out of this or whatever. Limit, you know, limitation 
is part if you can say it with the limited amount of information imagine what you can do with all the information available so it's really important to go down that rabbit hole but dude yeah. so oh sorry. go ahead sorry go ahead go there's ahead. one more thing i want to mention with that because the first time i ever read anything about that sort of limited practice was actually I think it was an interview with Jimmy Herring, who was, I still love Jimmy Herring, but he was a really big influence on me in high school. Um, and I got obsessed because I, I was able to go live and record with Johnny Sandlin, this producer, when right. I was like 16. And he had, he had done all the Aquarium Rescue Unit stuff and the early Derek Truck stuff. And I remember reading interviews where Jimmy Herring was saying, you know, sort of these weird philosophical, like Captain Beefheart things that, that, that Colonel Bruce would tell them, like, hey, man, I want you to play this whole solo on this one string. Or, hey, man, I want you to play the color green. And I remember that was the first time I really understood, like, thinking about music in maybe more of a philosophical way and, and being able to use that to come up with new ideas. And I, I distinctly remember that. So that if, uh, if Jimmy Herring ever hears this, that was a, that was a, very, important, that was a very important thing to read. It, it meant a lot to me. That's cool, man. And, Jim, man, yeah. Jimmy's a great dude. What a nice guy. Yeah, he's oh. awesome. Yeah. And obviously a monster. So, dude, okay, so you move from Seattle to San Diego. You start skateboarding and then playing guitar. And then, like you said, you met Johnny Sandlin and you started to get more into a blues world and, and some things. How did that transition happen? Yo, know, it's so funny, man. It's like when you're learning at that rate, at that age, you think that these phases are like a long portion of time and they're like six months where like it just goes by like that so i was playing punk rock but i still liked all the you know the stevie wonder stuff that i grew up listening to and earth wind and fire and neil young and acdc so there was sort of this transition from the punk rock being like a snobby punk rock teenager to like i went back to start listening to more acdc start listening to stevie ray vaughn but then i simultaneously was listening to like pantera and lamb of god and megadeth and like really heavy thrash stuff but i I think the important thing with all that metal stuff was to this day, my favorite stuff was always the pocket groove stuff. It was never just the thrash, like fast for the sake of fast or down tune for the sake of down tune. All the, even the metal stuff that I liked had that, like, I think Dimebag Darrow called it the hick bends, right? Where it's like, oh, yeah. even in the riffs, it was all those, all that stuff that like the blues guys would be like, Oh, that's like what Clapton was doing with his bending, with his lead playing and like, you know, John Mayall era with all that sort of like. So it's almost the same thing, like Dimebag sort of doing that within metal riffs. So it sort of started to create this amalgam of like, I like music all over the spectrum as long as it's got a tinge of blues in it. And it doesn't have to be a one, four, five, but it was like, so I started to get into that place where it was like, I was really starting to learn about Led Zeppelin more deeply, ACDC, Stevie Ray Vaughan. And then, of course, like we mentioned before, you chase the influences. So it's like, if it was Megadeth, I made my way back to Sabbath. And then if it was Led Zeppelin, I made my way back to T-Bone Walker and, and Howlin' Wolf. And then from those guys to Sun House and Buka White and yep. Robert Johnson and all the, you know, all the original cats that, you know, the Delta Blues guys. So it, it really started to become this map in your head of like where the web of people get their influence. And I was, going to the, I was going to the local library every single day and getting CDs and taking them home and burning them onto my computer. Um, and then I had a neighbor who I, I need to give a shout out because he was incredibly influential to me. Um, him and my dad were sort of like the people I'd go ask about these questions. But I had this next door neighbor, Paul Leesom. And Paul used to live in LA and he played in some like hair metal bands, but was also a guy that played banjo and played all sorts of like, he loved all music. And he had a, the biggest CD collection I'd ever seen. So I'd go down to his house because his, his, uh, uh, his daughter was one of my best friends in the same grade as me. So I'd go hang out there and he'd be like, hey, man, take this home. Take this home. And he'd give me stuff like Buddy Guy. And he'd give me stuff like, uh, you know, physical graffiti and like all these records that and all obviously all the Steve Ray Vaughan stuff. So he was sort of feeding me all these different genres. And, and it was one of the reasons I never really saw much of a difference between genres. Cause I was like, if it's good, it's good. If it's bad, it's bad. That's really all that I didn't really see the, like I did when I was in the punk rock thing where it's very segmented. Like you just listen yeah. to this. 
so that that was the transition out of that and then within a year and a half i was blues was starting to really take over and then i started playing live and the only place i could play live as a 16 year old that had been playing for two years i didn't have a band nobody my age liked the music i listened to i wasn't going to school and be like oh man you, you know you hear this steve ray vaughn live at el macombo like nobody yeah. knew what i was talking about so I started playing live and that's how it led. The blues got even more into it. Cause I was like, this is my only outlet. I'm going to dig even further into it. And um, that's how I got linked up with Johnny Sandlin was, uh, you know, it was literally a lady at my dad's work. She used to, she said he, she used to date Greg Allman in the sixties. <laughs> and my dad made some dumbass joke, like, well, who didn't? And, yeah, right. <laughs> and they ended up, <laughs> they ended up talking and she was like, well, I don't have Johnny's or Greg's number anymore, but, I do have this guy, Johnny Sandlin, that was around us a lot. And he produced a lot of their records and did a lot of the Capricorn and stuff. So I just sent him an email. He asked for a recording. I said, yeah, I've got one. Went to Guitar Center, bought a blues backing track CD, took it to a local boys and girls club, and just recorded myself improvising over the whole CD, sent it to Alabama. And two weeks later, he called me like, hey, man, I've got this record I want you to play on. And it's with some guys you might, it was with uh, Dwayne Trucks. Yeah. Uh, Derek Trucks, younger brother, drummer, uh -huh. fantastic drummer, great guy. And uh, Kevin Scott, who now is like become a really well-known bass player and plays with Wayne Krantz. And he, he put together Jimmy Herring's most recent band. So I was immediately in the deep end. And I feel incredibly lucky for that. That's really cool, man. And the way you, the way you talked about, you know, going to blues jams and getting in the blues scene, and that furthering your desire to do it because it was your outlet to play, I can relate to that 100%. I, you know, I ended up at 12 years old looking around at kids in my school who maybe, even if they had played as long as I had at that time and were as good as I was, they definitely didn't want to play the music I wanted to play. So it, that was my was only the, chance to play was to go to blues jams and blues places and start to play with adults. And then, of course, the second that happened – that means I'm going to go further that way and try to play more blues. It hooked me even more, you know, so I can it's relate. Part of that, it's part of that personality that I think you and I both have of like, if I'm doing this, I'm going to do it as best as I can. If I'm already doing it, like, but what were, I'm curious, what were the other kids that were actually good musicians at your school? What were they playing? Uh, like, what were metal. They it was metal at that time. It was the tail end of metal, almost grunge time. Not quite grunge yet. Grunge hit in high school. So in, in, in middle school, it was, you know, Metallica. It, but, I mean, it was Poison. It was, you know, yeah. Warrant, Cherry Pie, and, you know, all that type of stuff. Uh, so, so a mix of, like, really cool stuff with stuff that maybe hasn't held up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So when I would meet a kid who'd been playing a few years, because, I mean, I started playing at six, so by then I was already – been playing six years you know and it was like i'd meet a kid who'd been playing a few years and could play he had no interest in playing uh you know little wing or in playing strange brew or was definitely yeah. no interest in playing uh backdoor man or you know smokestack lightning or something like that absolutely no yeah. interest you know so you could maybe fool him into playing zeppelin but that might be about it or like jeff beck group or something like that yeah exactly exactly so it pushed me further. So it, it frustrated me to the point where I was begging my parents, you need to find me people to play with because I know it's holding me back not playing with musicians. That's a huge part of evolution. My teachers were telling me it. It was like, I need to be playing with other people, you know? So I pushed. Well, that's one that. of the bummers, the bummers now. And I'm not, I'm about to sound like a 90 year old guy, but um, that's one of the, the issues now that, I feel really lucky that I, I sort of started playing just before all this stuff started to hit. Like I started playing like two or three years before MySpace and like before I had a cell phone and before yeah. any like Instagram type of stuff was around is that there's some great people on Instagram that are, that, that I maybe don't necessarily follow, but people really like what they're doing. And I, I, I yeah. can recognize the technique and all that stuff, but then I've heard them play in person yeah. with a band yeah. and I'm like, this dude doesn't know where the one is. Like, there's no time. Like, yeah. it's yeah. clearly the art is bedroom guitar playing, which, look, is its own thing. I don't want to bash it completely because some of those dudes are great producers and they make cool stuff. But it is a very different thing playing live with live musicians. And when you don't do it regularly, it 
it will affect you. It's like all the bands that you and I love and artists and whoever you want to talk about, like they spent so much time, even if they were a relatively, um, you know, Neanderthal type, like punk rock group or, or whatever you want to call it. They had a ton of experience playing live. So even if they were playing the most basic stuff, they had a sound and a, and a tonality to them playing as a group that I, with a lot of the Instagram guitar player world and music Instagram world, I don't hear a lot of that. Well, it's, it's work experience. They just don't have the work experience, you know. Uh, kids who ask me a lot, of, a lot of times, excuse me, kids will ask me, oh, where do you get the never-ending, voc- you know, you can solo for seven minutes and you don't repeat yourself and you have so much, this vocabulary. And, and I'm like, well, it's directly attributed to the amount of gigs played from age 12 to 20 where I played for three hours a night and I was the lone soloist. And I learned how to read a room, how to get people's attention, how to not repeat myself, how to just play solos for fucking three hours, you know. And that that step that skip uh, that step is getting skipped now. Number one, because there's just not a lot of gigs, and obviously right now is different, anyways. But yeah, yeah, guys are have so much information available to them now on on YouTube or on whatever, and they come so much faster, quicker than we did, or especially even my generation. But they're skipping the foundational step of like learning what it takes to be on a gig. And that's where you develop that vocabulary and even just the stamina to be able to play, you know? So I know the people you're speaking of and you sit down in a room with them and you play a one, four vamp and they run out of things to say in you know, 30 30 seconds. seconds. Yeah. 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 You know, it's, it's cool to talk to you about that because that's something, I don't know if I've ever had this conversation. I, I, that three hour gig thing in a bar where people are drunk, but you still have to keep their attention. That was my entire life in high school. And it sounds like it was the same thing for you for probably longer. Cause you, you were playing even younger than me, but from, the from age 12 like- till from 12 to the minute I graduated high school every weekend, yeah. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and sometimes weekdays, if I could convince my parents, where, yeah, till four. In the, I played a bar that was open till four in the morning, and we played four sets, four 45-minute sets. Dude, I, I had maybe not until four, but I had some similar experiences. And I got to say, my parents were, were troopers, man, because they – my parents are the type of people that get up at, like, five in the morning and go on, like, a – you know, my mom's an aerobic instructor, personal trainer. She's up at, like, 5 a.m. teaching a spin class, doing it all out – and, and they go to bed at like nine. They always did. They were early, you know, they would go to bed early. They would come out every single weekend and stay there until like two in the morning. Yep. And I could see them falling asleep <laughs> knowing that they love the music. But at the end of the night, they're just like, holy shit. And yep. they did it every single effing weekend. Because I did the same thing. It was Friday, Saturday, su- Sunday festivals in San Diego, like a lot of outdoor like biker festivals and stuff like that. And like you, I was this lone soloist where it was like, hey, man, we've got 20 songs and we got to play for three hours. So we got a five-minute solo on every song. And I was like, but let me say this, because I think you'll agree. Because a lot of people are like, dude, I just don't have the opportunity to do that right, especially during quarantine. But the best thing you could ever do, and this is what I did every moment I wasn't doing those gigs, is playing along to live records yeah. like the Almond Brothers, like Humble Pie, like Banded Gypsies, play along to those records as if you're in the band. Yep. And that, that's as close as you're ever going to get to getting a live. Like, if you don't put on Live at the Fillmore, Almond Brothers, and play along, you're crazy. You're a crazy Dude, person. I used to take Banded Gypsies, Live at the Fillmore, uh, Live at the Fillmore, Albert King, Live Wire Blues Power. I used to take all yeah. those live records, and I would learn the solos, and then I would... I would play the song one time and I'd play the solo note for note and then I'd play the song again and I'd play my own solo the next time. And yeah, uh, yeah I mean, and I never practiced with a metronome ever in my life. I've never done it. And, but that, I played along with records ever. I would come home, put on my headphones, plugged into my Sony stereo that I got from my bar mitzvah and, and <laughs> play along to records. That, that was my life after I'd get home from school and that was what I would do. It's all time to go to bed. Same here. I started using a metronome in my 20s to tighten up certain things. But when I was in high school, I was also hard. Dude, I was so hard headed. Like I was like, because I I thought of a metronome as like, that's what the nerds do. Right. I was like, that's some whack stuff. 
that like the nerd and I don't mean I, I mean nerd in the sense of like people who think of music as math. That's yeah. that's more what I what I mean with that. I've since realized like I can round out certain things that I want to practice specifically. But yeah, it's if you want to get the time feel of playing with a band, you put on bands like we mentioned, and then if you want to move a little bit further, you put on like Live Cream, because then you start to learn to like how it's like to play with a band that's shifting polyrhythms all the time and like doesn't accent like Ginger Baker is not always accenting the one and he's like shifting into these African, you know, subdivisions for a while and you have to be able to keep time. And for me, that was, it was like gradual. I would do that. And then after I played along to Cream, I'd put on Aquarium Rescue Unit live and try to play along to that was it. That the time is free that, you know, um, but then, you know, then it's like starting to play an odd time stuff. And, and once again, not thinking of odd time stuff as math, but thinking of it as like, who has done that, that I actually think sounds musical. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, that's the thing about time. Uh, there's a difference between metronomic time and like living, breathing time with a band. And it's important to have both. But the living time is more important because, I mean, you're going to spend most of your life out there playing with other musicians. So when a drummer is on top and a bass player is behind, you're going to sit in the middle and you're going to learn this. Or if a drummer's behind, you're going to pull him along, you know, and, and this and that. Or if everybody's uh, straight down the middle, you may lay back to create the feel that's necessary. And again, real world experience is the only place that you learn to do this. Well, and yeah, and, and, and time feel is all relative, like you said. Like, I always make the point of, like, I always think of the way that Van Halen plays guitar, like, almost like he's, he has time like a bluegrass guy, where it's like, yeah. he's always ahead of the beat, but intentionally and purposefully. So he's always pushing the tempo, you know what I mean? But he's never ahead of the tempo, you know what I mean? He, it's, yep. That's the thing is consistency, like... When you listen to bluegrass guys, like they're always pushing the tempo, but you, you better be damn sure they know exactly where the tempo is. That's sure. just the time that they want to imply. Yeah. Um, so that's the thing that I would do, just like you said, like try to feel what it's like to like, what is it that makes ACDC sound the way they do? You know, what is it that makes, I mean, you want to talk about like the chess rhythm section and like listen to like Howlin' Wolf stuff. It's like that feel of like some guys are swinging, some guys are straight, some guys are right in the middle that's the shit and that is, is also a very american sound that that uh, you know i don't think any other like i love a lot of british music but that feel thing of like everybody's on a different level of swing or lack thereof that's some like deeply american shit and wow. and that new orleans feel that that made its way up to chicago i i just love that feel because well, it wasn't really it wasn't spoken it wasn't calculated it just happened you know it was this guy plays like this and this guy plays like this and you put them together and you get this, you know? And then, so when you're talking about the British cats, then they're trying to copy that, which was natural, you know? So you end up with a different feel and something that becomes its own thing, which that's the way this shit works anyways. But yeah, I mean, there's no substitute for what happens when you put multiple musicians together and time becomes relative between all of them and it creates a living thing, you know? Yeah. And look, even in the hip hop world, the best hip hop, in my opinion, is like Dilla and Madlib and MF Doom and people like that, where like it feels time wise and, and they actually played that shit live. Like they didn't just go like quantize, like all, right. the, all the Dilla stuff that, every, that all the like, you know, Neo Soul Cats and everybody wants to copy now. All of, I mean, it was more of a thing to copy it maybe 10 years ago, but still to this day that even that time feel is the reason that is superior to the other hip hop feels is exactly what you're saying. It, it mimics almost the equivalency of having a live band where things are in a different place. They're not perfect. They're moving around. Right. There's a natural, there's a, you know, a naturalness to it. Yep. All right, dude. So tell me, okay, so now you're playing blues, you're playing gigs, you're getting experience. When do you start to, get more into the sideman world of the professional gigs the paid sessions so you've started to do these blues sessions with with johnny and you're traveling to do that when do you start going out on the road as a sideman so, so this is so the, the transition with the johnny sandlin stuff in alabama was is kind of a trip so what happened was 
he asked me to do that record right with Dwayne Dwayne Trucks and um, and Kevin Scott and and some other cats Albert Simpson some other cats too like it was Albert's band but those are the side guys um, so I went out and did that record after that Johnny was like man would you consider moving out here after your after you graduate high school I want you to play essentially as my like house session guitar player on all my records so I was like are you serious so I graduated high school half a year early. Because I have managed to have enough credits where I was like, oh, shit, I can get out of here. I don't want to be here anyway. So I graduated early, moved by myself to rural Alabama, like from San Diego to literally, I'm not, I wasn't in Birmingham. I was in Gadsden. So I was in like rural Alabama. And um, I made a couple records. I played on some Bonnie Bramlett stuff. And I got to track with some, some very, very cool musicians. But then Johnny got sick. And this is like a month and a half after I, after I moved out there. So I was stranded. I wasn't in college. I had no money. I wasn't old enough to play in bars. And I didn't know anybody to get me in out there either. So nice. I was effed. Like I, I was like, I just ruined my life. What did I do? After a bit of time, I managed to make my way back to California, got out of my lease somehow. And my parents convinced me to join that King of the Blues competition that I had joined. I had actually joined that a year and a half or two years before and I lost at the end of the regional circuit. And the judges were like, we think if you come back in a year or two, you could win the whole national competition. And I remember when I was 16 or whatever, I was pissed. Because I was like, <laughs> who, the, who the fuck are these guys to tell me that? They were right, of course. Um, and I went back, you know, after I got back and I kind of felt like I don't have any other opportunity. Uh, you know, like I said, I kind of screwed my life up temporarily there um, for good reason, but still. I joined this competition six months later. It's the national final. There's five people left in the country from like 6,000. And I was like, oh my God, this is completely crazy. So I did the final night, the, the King of the Blues at um, the, the now deceased uh, House of Blues in Hollywood. Right. And like Bonamassa was playing that night and Kenny Wayne Shepard was the host and like uh, Steve Lukather was one of the judges and it was crazy. I'd never played in front of an audience this big in my entire life. Um, it was like, you know, over 2000 people. And I, I, at the, I played well, like I felt like it went well. The, I, the audience reaction was very solid. And I remember being like, I wasn't happy with my playing, but I was like, man, based on the audience reaction, I'm, I might've won. And I didn't, I got second place. And, <laughs> and uh, I was, it was, I lost, like, there was a lot of money at stake. It was like 25 grand, a bunch of guitars and endorsements. And I remember them reading the other guy's name and, you know, you got to smile and, you know, be, be an adult about it. And I remember walking off really defeated and I walked around the corner and I'm in that dark alley in the back of the King of the Blues and Robert Knight, who's the photographer for Guitar mm-hmm. Center, all those photos you see outside of Guitar Center with like mm-hmm. Hendrix and Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton and Santana. Those are all Robert's photos. He's been doing it forever. So Robert literally walks up to me like this is in like almost famous or something, hands me his business card and goes, this isn't over for you. Call me tomorrow and walks in down like a dark hallway. And I'm like, what is going on? So I called him the next day and Robert started managing me. And I started driving back and forth from San Diego, like two, three times a week and driving back to San Diego same day just to go hang out with Robert. He introduced me to people and he hit me up after about six months of that and said, Hey, check your email box. So I check it and I've got an email from Robert. That's a forward from this band B's B apostrophe Z. And I looked them up on YouTube. They're the biggest band in Japanese history. They've sold like 90 plus million records in Japan alone. And they play like Tokyo dome five nights in a row, 75,000 people. And I was like, I've never heard of these guys, but they're playing on stage with like Aerosmith and I'm and Bon Jovi and stuff. And I'm like, what? So Robert's like the singer's going on a solo tour. He's looking for a guitar player. I sent him five guys and you're one of them. So you might get an email back. They, they message Robert a day later and they're like, Hey, who's this Joshua kid? Who, who is he? And, and you know, what's his deal? Tells him about him. They go, Oh, cool. How old is he? Oh, he's 18. They said, nah, we're, we're good. And he said, look, audition him if you think he's immature or not ready that's fine but just give him the shot give him the opportunity so they intentionally tried to mess with me they sent me a bunch of music a bunch of music and i had like a day and a half to two days to learn it and i went up to i think some people you probably know like uh, Corey mccormick on bass and shane gallus on drums they were the 
the rhythm section. I drove to Shane's studio. They filmed a video of it and sent it to Japan. And they apparently Koshi, the artist, watched it. And uh, I found out recently, I didn't know this. Nobody ever told me this. Shane called Koshi in Japan after the audition and said, hire this kid, hire him. And I got a call two weeks later and they said, do you want to come do like a six month tour, all arenas, 15,000 people a show. We're going to do four nights at Budokan and film a DVD. And I had never played another show bigger than the one at the house of blues where I played for 10 minutes. Yeah. And that's how it all started. That's how I got my first gig. Yeah. That's crazy, man. It was completely that's, that's insane. Crazy story. I still remember the first, so the first night of the tour, the way it worked was the stage had this like quarter um, sort of eggshell thing in front of us that you couldn't see through. And then as soon as the first note hits in the piano, it goes translucent. And I remember walking on the stage. I'd never had any ears on for a show before. And I took them out and I'm like, this, I'm gonna, this is a punked episode because there's no noise. I can't hear anything. I'm like, where are the people? I literally was silent, but I knew it was 15,000 seats. So I can't see out. They can't see in. The second the first piano thing happens, it goes translucent and the audience goes ape shit. <laughs> and I asked the tour manager, who's still a good friend and lives in LA now, why was that? And she said, they didn't want to miss the first note of the show. So they knew it was coming up and that's why they went completely silent. They don't want to miss the opening the opening note of the show. They want to, they want to see it from the first second. And uh, yeah, that was just, that was the, the biggest moment of my whole life. And uh, it's etched into my mind. Yeah. Uh, dude, who won the uh, King of the Blues that year? Man, I don't, it was a guy, I think his name was Kirby. He was a nice guy. He played two slides at once. Okay. So I didn't have, yeah, a yeah, cool, yeah. I didn't have a cool ass thing like that. So, uh, yeah. Super nice guy, though. And look, he, he lives in Texas, and I'm sure he put the money to good use. But I, it killed me at the time. I'm not going to lie. It was, it, was a, it was a bash. Dude, I it lost was a bash back yeah. in the 90s, like in 95. I think it was 95, 94. They had this nationwide Hendrix competition. And I made it to the semifinals. And I had to drive from Florida to, I think, North Carolina for these semifinals. And I lost in the finals of that semifinal. And I was so <laughs> fucking pissed. You know, I went home. How old were you again? I was probably 14, 15, I don't know, something like that. And, uh, yeah, I was so angry. So. <laughs> well, man, at that age, it's like you have no reference for what the future could be. You only see the immediate present to a certain extent. Even for people like us that we have long-term plans for ourselves, but – there is some some sort of a blinder on where you're like, well, that was it. That was my shot, you know. Yeah. You know. All right. Let's get into our uh, ten questions here. Yeah, let's do it, man. All right. So, number one, when you first started learning and playing, so maybe it's Green Day. I don't know. What was the first thing that you when you learned it? It lit lit up your eyes. It set the hook. Like, holy shit! I can't believe I figured this out. I'm so hooked forever for the rest of my life. The Crazy Train solo. <laughs> I remember, I remember learning. I, in fact, I played that at my, uh, I don't know, it was seventh, it was probably eighth grade, my eighth grade talent show. In fact, that was the biggest audience I'd played in front of until the King of the Blues, because it was Crazy. in front of the whole school. Um, but that was the first one. I mean, I learned a bunch of riffs that had hooked me from day one, but I remember playing along to that. And I'm like, I'm playing a Randy Rhodes solo and I can actually play it. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. Like I, I mean, I'm sure I was playing it like garbage and it was probably wrong, but I remember playing along and playing it from note one to the end of the solo and being like, I just did this. And I've been playing guitar for about six months. This is pretty cool, man. I, I, I'm going to keep with this. And, and yeah. that was a big moment for me for sure. Well, okay. So then that's question two as well, which was what was the first solo you learned note for note? Was that it? Or was there another one before that? Well, it, it, it was probably, if you want to consider it a solo, it was probably, is it Brain Stew? Or, or what's that, that solo that's the Green Day one where it's really just an arpeggio? Uh, uh, it's just an arpeggio that they turned into a solo. Know. And I remember learning that and being like, oh, wow. Like, I learned that in like five minutes. That was pretty cool. <laughs> um, so I remember stuff like that. I'm trying to think if there was any other... 
I mean, I definitely learned. Oh, Purple Haze. It's okay. Purple Haze. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I remember learning the whole, you know, like learning, learning all of that. And that blew my mind um, as well. And then there was probably that next step of learning solos that felt more improvised, and which is a little mm -hmm. harder because the, the, the pacing and stuff is very different when something is truly improvised. So to get into the phrasing, phrasing was everything. I didn't learn a lot of stuff front to back solo wise, to be honest. I, other than stuff like Crazy Train that's very like hummable, I didn't learn a lot of like the Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton stuff all the yeah. way through. It was more phrase by phrase. Um, because I didn't, I probably didn't have the patience to learn it front to back if I'm being totally honest. Well, it's interesting to me because everybody's so different. You know, I, I learned some solos note for note and, and then as, as I got older, it became more like, Oh, let me just pick this thing out of here and then play my own solo, you know, to go along. But those initial ones, like you said, I'll never forget. I could pick up a guitar right now and play, you know, Stevie solo on Texas Flood or yeah. fucking the ACDC solo on You Shook Me All Night Long or whatever. Like some of yeah. those ones I learned every note, you know? Yeah. You Shook Me All Night Long when I forgot about that. That was probably up there for me too because that's such a hummable solo. And yet it has all the best blues phrasing that you and I would ever want. Like it's perfect. And it could be 30 years from now. If someone said, play me that solo, it'll come out like that. Because I'll never forget it. I played it 8 million times as a kid, you know? Yeah. yeah. Same here, man. All right. What's the first thing you play when you pick up a guitar? Do you have like a, a little chord or a pattern or a thing that just automatically comes out when you're testing your amp, when you first hit standby, or when you, whatever? I'm just always curious about that because I know I, probably, I do. It would probably be like a kind of delta, like... Probably just something in E just to get. To get bends and see how the bending. Uh, probably would be something like that sort of delta open thing to get a feel for the open strings. And then some bends to get a feel for like, can I do all the. Can I do all the sort of microtonal stuff that I like? Can I hold a bend and just to test the action and. You know, probably stuff like that. It's more, it's more like a, a gauge for the instrument up the neck and like how the setup is more than anything. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause it's like, I mine, I've found I've transitioned over the years. I'll have multi-year periods where if I pick up a guitar, I kind of play the same thing every time and then it'll change like in a few years, then it'll be something else. Every time I pick up a guitar, it's the first thing I play unplugged, plugged, whatever. It doesn't matter, but I'm always, I'm curious about that. Interesting. I, you know, I don't know if I've ever had an exact thing. I will say that like, for, for, and I'm sure it's probably this way for you, but it really depends on the, on the tone. Once I play a chord, like if I play a chord and I realize like all that stuff is so internalized now, it's like, if I have, a certain amount of distortion, all the chords with extensions and stuff in it are out the window, right? Like I'm not going to be playing yeah. a bunch of Steely Dan chords and Alan Holdsworth things. Like if I have a certain amount, like with the tone I have now, I'm definitely not going to be playing, you know, yeah. you know, all these chords like that. It just doesn't make sense. So I would say it's somewhat naturally around that and probably double stops because I like to hear how they ring into each other. And then maybe checking if I can bend the neck with the guitar too, because okay. not all guitars you can get a good. So I might, I might check to see like with a sort of guitar like this with the neck, you know, I can get a good, but some like strats, you can't get, you can't get shit from them. Mm -hmm. So I'll test that out too. Cool, man. All right. What key style groove song are you hearing in your head when you walk around, when you're, you know, doing nothing, when you're driving the car? Because I know, you know, when I'm sleeping or walking around, I'm cooking, I'm always hearing a shuffle. It's always a shuffle when, when you know, unless I'm thinking of something specific, just the, the random loop that plays in my head is a shuffle and it's normally in B flat and I'm hearing, that's just what I hear 24 hours a day. I'm curious if you have something like that that's always, always playing. 
it's got to be an A for me because I always consider A as like the best way. Like when I teach students, I always start with A because I feel like it's the most centered as far as the guitar is concerned, as far as like when I visually see the neck, seeing it in A with all the sort of like modes and pentatonic shapes and stuff, mm -hmm. A seems to be the most centered. And I also just love... Um, it would probably be something along the, you know... It's probably like a halftime thing in A. That's probably the, that's probably what I'm hearing. Nice. Yeah. It's like, it's, yeah. you know, this constant loop of improvisation. Sometimes I can't fall asleep because it's like, I got to finish this solo in my head. That's going. Well, you might be the only, the only guitar player hearing a song in B flat in their head. Oh dude, this is all I hear. All I hear in my head all day long is that shit. It's literally, I just hear it nonstop in my head. I can't stop. All day long, all night, it's, it never goes away. <laughs> well, I think that's part of what makes you you is like, I mean, I would equate that with a horn player. If somebody was like, yeah, I hear a B-flat sort of like jazz blues shuffle in my head, I'd be like, oh, you're, you're a horn player. Like if I just was randomly meeting somebody, I'd be like, yeah, it's a horn thing. But yeah, I get it, man. I, that That's something that I... I I love that vibe too, but I would say it's pro for me, it's probably a, and it's probably one of those sort of in between, not shuffle, not straight vibe, yeah. like mid tempo, yeah. like backbeat things. Yeah. Swinging, but really straight groove. Yeah. 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 All right. Okay. Here's a good one. When did you feel like you started to find your voice? Like, was there a moment when you, you learned a new technique or something and all of a sudden like the, the walls fell down and you felt like, I need to go this direction. This is me. I found it, you know? That's a great question, man. Um, it was probably recording with Johnny Sandlin. Honestly, that was probably it because I had literally, other than that one time that I recorded that backing track CD for Johnny, where I literally was just doing what I did at home, where it was like, I just put the thing on and improvised for five minutes on each song. <laughs> with Johnny, I was actually like writing solos, right? And he would point out, I like that thing you do like this. And I was like, oh, I didn't even realize that that was what I was doing. But I, I always felt like the very minute phrasing things that you and I would probably equate with like 60s Clapton and Jeff Beck, all of it. <laughs> all of that. That, that stuff, I was like, you know what? I, I feel like because I maybe have influences that weren't around during that period, I can incorporate that stuff in a way. I could incorporate that style of phrasing across all the genres I play because I was now functioning as a session guy where it was like I might be playing over like a Sam and Dave type tune and mm -hmm. then a Stevie Wonder thing and then an Allman Brothers thing with Slide. And I was starting to feel like, well, shit, I can actually hear – now, obviously, you're always working to get it even more to sound like yourself, but I started to be able to be like, hey, that sounds like me on that recording. And it would be over a couple different genres. And I think that was the thing for me was like, I wanted to be able to sound like me over each genre and not be like, now I enter metal mode. But it yes. was a slight understanding of like, the phrasing has to sh subtly shift, but the overall vocabulary is still me, no matter what I'm playing over. It could be like a fusion thing, it could be a blues funk thing. It could be a soul track. And that, that was probably it was being in the studio and actually having to like, be like, I'm, I'm going to stand behind that solo that I just recorded forever. Right. Yeah. Nice man. All right. Valid, valid answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's your biggest weakness that you're willing to admit? And I'll tell everybody mine, it's acoustic guitar on sessions, like microscope, acoustic guitar, finger-picked, arpeggio. That's my biggest. I, I drives me crazy. What drives you crazy? Mine is literally the exact same thing. I'm very confident with my strumming on acoustic guitar. 
But when it comes to finger picking in non-blues settings, yep. I'm always trying to work on it because it was never, ever, like I was never learning Lindsey Buckingham stuff. And I love Fleetwood Mac, but I was never learning all that. I was never learning Tommy Emmanuel. I wasn't no. learning like, you know. James Taylor. Kansas. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I loved all of it, but it was never interesting. Not, it, was never, it wasn't that it wasn't interesting. It wasn't something I actively was trying to learn. So I feel like I've gotten it to a place where I can get by and I, I can play finger picking stuff when I need to, because with Shania, I've kind of had to learn some of that stuff, but I would say that's probably, probably the thing that I, I I'm actively the weakest on. Yeah. I'm probably very similar to you, man. Like I, it's just something that I can fake it, but if somebody who is a real finger picker was there, they would know that I was faking it. It's just, it's not even just finger picking for me. It's just like, something happens when I pick up that acoustic guitar and it's soloed up and it's under that microscope. It's like, man, my precision goes out the window. You know, it just never sounds like me. It just sounds like some hack, you know, it drives me well, crazy. You know, I, I also think it's, it's to give us a little bit of a break here and, and give us a huge excuse. I also think that nowadays the way they track acoustic guitars is way more, up front and in your face like when you go back and listen to like jimmy page acoustic tones with zeppelin yeah he's fucking up all over the place but the way they, they just put a mic the anywhere they, they didn't care it wasn't yeah it wasn't yeah it, that's part of the weird thing is it's like it's it's it seems like the close miking technique and the way that a lot of modern sort of music is produced it puts this weird onus on the acoustic guitar that's almost unrealistic unless your whole jo your whole identity is this like absolutely perfect finger picking thing um that obviously some guys absolutely crush but when i yeah, first I moved here man i went to a session and i was playing electric guitar and across the hall dean parks was on an acoustic guitar session and dean's one of the greatest session guitar players of all time but he's especially one of the greatest acoustic guitar session players of all time so I walked in this room and it was like a countryish track. He's playing triads like D. Boom ba doom da ba da 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 C ba da da G da do da 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 da. And it was so in tune and so perfectly played. And I was like, I can, I will never be able to do that on an acoustic guitar and make it sound like that. And he was playing nothing complicated at all. I dude, it's I, you know what I think part of it has to do with what you learned in your primary years. It's it's. There are certain things that like you and I can tighten up and work on. Like I was never great with the bluegrass picking sort of like completely unmuted right hand stuff. Yeah. But I was super lucky when I joined Shania's band, we were starting with that Vegas residency for like two years. I didn't live out there. I was out there maybe five to six months on and off throughout the year. But a lot of the guys in the band were like Nashville session guys that had grown up in family bluegrass bands. So I had to get my shit together to jam with them backstage and they were giving me all these like, hey, man, check out this Strength in Numbers record. Check out this Tony Rice stuff. Nice. And, you know, Sam Bush on mandolin. And so I, I feel a lot more confident. That was something in my early 20s I was really, really self-conscious about was like the picking stuff. And I've gotten that to a point where I feel pretty happy with it. But I need to do the same thing with the finger picking because I got to get those in the realm, you know. All right. All right. You've already mentioned a few that might surprise people, but what is just a, a huge influence on your playing that people would be surprised by? Uh, Marty Friedman from Megadeth. Okay, all right. That's Absolutely. A good one. Like, I, would, I would say as far as metal soloists and, and compositional style solos, not improvised stuff, but like, like when you listen to like, like Dimebag in the metal world, you feel like there's a level of improv, even though he's clearly writing the solos. Yo, but no, you feel like he's, he's, he's improving at certain points. Exactly. Absolutely. But compositionally, I think of Marty Friedman as like the Brian May of metal, where he's thinking compositionally and like his phrasing techniques and the way he groups notes and all of that stuff was so much more advanced. Really, really him and Chris Poland, the two main cats from Megadeth, those were the two metal soloists where I was like, this is so much better than almost every other metal soloist. It's not even in the same ballpark. Mm. Um, all of that sort of legato stuff that Chris Poland was doing, but he had the phrasing of Jeff Beck. Like I could hear Jeff Beck in Chris Poland's playing. And when I heard Marty Friedman, I was like, 
I could, he was one of the guys that I got all of that, you know, um, the sort of like bending from non-diatonic notes to diatonic mm -hmm. notes and like pre-bending. It was sort of like a, almost a Claptonism, but he was coming at it from a world music perspective. Like it was like he was hearing those Clapton microtonal bends from like an Indian and Japanese perspective. Mm. Um, so those guys, those guys had a big, it's not that I learned a lot of that stuff note for note because it was before the slowdowners were available and it was just sure. too fast um, to learn like Tornado of Souls. But it had a big impact on me as far as like hearing that you can actually play stuff that wasn't just like, you know, just pentatonic stuff like that. Um, uh, so those guys, those guys were probably a, a pretty big influence. Nice. All right. I like it. Okay. Would you rather have a shitty guitar and a great amp or a, a great guitar and a shitty amp? Um, probably. Oh, that's a really tough choice. <laughs> Are we talking shitty guitar like you can't play it or it sounds No, bad? just, just you know, a, a bad guitar, good amp, good guitar, bad, bad amp. Bad, bad guitar, good amp, I think. See, I'm with you, but you're the first guy so far that said that. And everybody what? else I've asked has said taken the guitar. Dude, look, let, let me, I, this, this is our trump card. Go on YouTube, everybody, and watch Jack Pearson playing a fucking squire and slaying everybody in Nashville. Yep. Jack Pearson will show up on stage at third and Lindsley with a straight up stock squire and smoke everybody. Yep. And, and that's all you need. That's all you need. Like it's in Jack's hands. He's got a good amp. He's got yep. a good amp, but as long as we don't mean shitty guitars and it's unplayable, it's just a, a no, not unplayable. Guitar. No, but I guarantee if Jack and, showed up with the squire, and a solid-state crate with digital reverb, it wouldn't be quite as inspiring. <laughs> exactly. That's, dude, I'm, I'm with you on this, and I'm actually very surprised anybody went any other way. I, I, the, the amp is an app. If you plug into a bad amp or, like, a direct into a bored sound, it literally doesn't matter what you do. My enthusiasm goes completely out the window, and the gig is just like, whatever. It's gone. Yeah. It's gone. I can't do anything. I could play on a guitar that's not set up 100% the way I like and doesn't have the, the feel that I like 100%. But as long as the amp sounds okay, I'll make it work. Vice versa, it's much harder for me to make it work. Well, have you ever been on stage in like a setting that's relatively quiet with like no reverb on the amp and a solid state amp? You yeah. want to bang your head on a wall. It's the worst it's the worst. It's the, it's, the, it's the absolute worst. I can deal with I've played gigs with bad guitars. I mean, I've had gigs where, like, something broke and somebody was like, I got a guitar in the house. You want to play it? And yeah. it goes fine. Like, I watched the videos back. I, I think people vastly overestimate how much the guitar has to do with their sound, and they underestimate how much the amp has to do with their sound. And the 100%. speaker. 100%. The amp and the speaker is the last thing in the chain before it hits people's ears. So, just yeah, saying. Yeah, like, dude, I... Look, you can, yeah, I, I could not agree more with you. I, I, I'm actually really surprised people went the other way. It took me a second. I just wanted to make sure it wasn't an unplayable guitar because I've been in that scenario too where the no. action's like, yeah. but even then, I'll grab a slide Yeah, if the action's 10 feet off the neck. Exactly. You know? I, I just know, yeah, I can be 100% more comfortable with a good amp and whatever guitar than the other scenario with that, without question. Amen. I'm with you. All right. What? keeps you motivated man you're always learning new shit and you know you're growing and you're a young guy so but what what keeps you pushing every day to be better tomorrow than today i'm curious what what keeps the fire stoked well i would say at a more sort of philosophical level it's what i said earlier as far as like the more i've learned the more i know that i still need to learn but if you want to talk about how that actually comes into my life, I would say it's constantly listening to new music. I mean, I spent mm -hmm. the first four months of quarantine or at least three before anything was open at all, getting my jazz stuff together. Cause I love jazz, but I, I didn't go to music school. I never took lessons. Um, I had, I had picked up a lot of jazz stuff and I'm a massive, massive John Schofield and Bill Frizzell fan. Mm -hmm. And I love sort of their interpretation. I did include 
Matheny on his trio records in that as well. And I, you know, I just, I love jazz. So I decided I'm going to spend three months. That's literally, I didn't listen to anything else at all. The first three months I was putting on Paul motion records and Bill Evans records and, and, you know, Charlie Parker records and Kurt Rosenwinkel and whatever. I was just trying to find that. And then the last month and a half, I've been doing a bunch of sessions for a TV show that I'm now writing a bunch of music and producing music for, and it's all metal. So the last two months or so, I've been listening to Mastodon and Lamb of God and Pantera and all that stuff nonstop. So it's like I'm constantly shifting what I'm listening to, and that gives me the inspiration that, that I need and the realization that I haven't even touched the surface of all the stuff that I could find. You know, friends are always sending me new stuff, and I'm like, dude, I, I can't believe I've never heard this before, and I just dive into it, you know, all the way. Number 10. Okay. In five years, man, where, where would you like to be as a player or in your career? What's, what's a goal that you're pushing for? that you want to hit? I, I would like to be in a place where I'm producing and playing on a lot of stuff. Like I've, in the last couple of years, I mean, I just had that Bill and Ted um, movie come out and I produced and played on, uh, co-produced with Corey Chirko, the band leader from Shania. Um, we co-produced and played on the, like, the song that saves the universe. It's like eight minutes at the end of the movie. And when you see Keanu playing guitar that's actually my playing there and all the Hendrix stuff at the end of the movie that Hendrix stuff was me too um that that is exactly I want to be doing stuff where I'm writing and producing it and I can get get all of these different influences out because working on the Bill and Ted thing and then working on this new show where I'm doing a lot of like hard rock blues rock metal stuff I love getting to flex all those different muscles and it keeps me excited. That's really what it's about for me. It's like, I want to keep myself excited. And I've realized like, I I obviously want to still go on the road. I love playing with Shania. Um, I I would like to do um, some more stuff. That's, that's some touring. That's, that's more improv based in the future too. Like when I went out with Beth Hart, I was touring the Bonamassa record that they did together. So it was another one of those like, Hey, every song's a four minute solo, you know, build it and make the audience, you know, freak out. That was fun. And I'd love to do some of that stuff inter, you know, intermittently again, while I'm touring, playing country stuff. And I want to, I just want to be able to combine all of the things that I love about music in a consistent manner that rather than spending two or three years on one thing and then shifting, which is fun, but I'd like to, I'd like it to be more interspersed with each other. That's a good goal, man. That's, that's, that's yeah. certainly fair enough, you know. Not yeah. not too much to ask. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Nice, man. Ruling. Well, uh, for the members, we're going to have a little addendum video called Turn 2 where I'm going to ask Josh to teach us a lick, and maybe I'll show you a lick. Um, but anyways, thank you, dude, so much for coming on and being a part of this. It's been a pleasure, and hopefully when real world – uh, comes back to normal we can get together and hang some dude man that that would be a blast i i, I just want to give you another uh, you know another big thank you to you um for having me on like i said to you earlier i i was listening to your playing before we met and uh i still remember seeing you play live the first time with rafael sadiq at like a oh. fender event and f- it it freaked me out i was like this is such killing guitar playing i can't i can't even believe this it was like 2011 or something like that and I just remember seeing you play and being like, this guy is whooping ass right now. Um, thanks, man. So That's I, nice I of you to say. Man, I, I, and I, so thanks for having me on. Do you mind if I give a shout-out for the podcast that I'm going to be releasing soon? Is that Please cool? Please do. Please do. And we will put links to all things Joshua Gooch in the bottom of the description so you'll be able to find whatever you want to promote. But, yes, please do. Man, so I started doing this podcast, which I hope to have you on in the future. Um, it's called Album Impact with Joshua Ray Gooch. And basically the way it works is the guest gives me at least a week or so where they pick two records that were particularly impactful and influential on their musical identity and playing. So I dive into the records. Some of them are records I've never heard and some of them are records I also know extremely well. So the podcast ends up being like we dive really deep into the finer details of like what makes this music great. And some of the things that maybe happy accidents that happened in the studio. So there's some history about the album too. 
but it simultaneously acts as sort of a sounding board between the guest's life and and my life. So it, we sort of like figure out like where when it came into their life and how it influenced them getting to where they are now. Um, so it's sort of biographical, but it's also very much about the albums. Nice. Um, and I've I've done six episodes. The first episode's getting released next week, but when this is released, it'll probably be it'll probably be out and. Um, it's going to be up on YouTube as a video podcast, but it's also going to be on all the podcast networks, you know, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, um, Spotify, all of that stuff. So it'll be on there, and I hope to have you on, and uh, I know we'd have hours and hours to talk about our favorite stuff. Dude, anytime, anytime. So everybody, check that out, and check out all of Joshua's stuff. You need to hear this guy play if you haven't yet, because uh, he's amazing. And, uh, dude, thank you so much for coming, man, and... Uh, Hang on, and we'll do the uh, the extra part. <laughs> Sounds good, man. Thanks for having me.